0: to episode 173 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is the 24th of January 2017. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Philip Waugh. Hello. (laughs) And Tom Senior. Good day. Hello everybody. So some sort of early access Kickstarter thing has happened but it's happened so soon to the recording of this podcast that uh, I have no opinion about it whatsoever. It's called Early Ninja. Some sort of way of vetting or quality controlling or something to try and improve the experience of people buying in on early access games.
1: That's been around for ages mm. as in that general concept, because that's what like Ubisoft, isn't that what Ubisoft were doing with their, is it Ubisoft? Who am I thinking of? The people who basically said that they would offer some kind of advice and you know reassurances that a game idea had been fleshed out.
0: Mm, yeah, it's, it's a and similar then, thing. It's uh...
1: like and also the the whole sort of idea of paying it forward by devs to other devs on Kickstarter, things like that. You know, I
0: don't know how much exact overlap there is there, uh, that and that specific bit, but I do know that there is both a Kickstarter page and a and a website with a lot of charts. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I wasn't in the mood for charts.
1: Well, I wasn't expecting us to have this as news at all.
0: Well, I mean, well, what I was going to say is because it is genuinely a thing. We've we've set a track, we've set a precedent for discussing the the vagaries of of early access and, and that related stuff. I thought rather than uh, ignore it completely, let's acknowledge it. but Let's also say I think we should talk about this when A we know what the fuck it is, and probably some developers have responded because hmm. <laughs> that's the, that's the big question for me with any initiative like this, no matter how well meaning is. What is the, the buy-in from developers and, and would they find it useful? So definitely exists, but God knows. Also in, in the, in the, in the news today, uh, it's Resident Evil 7, which I have to admit snuck up on me completely. Like it went from what I thought was a sort of tech demo kind of thing to mm. a game that's out and everyone seems to love. Very, Suddenly. But that might be me not paying attention. Tom, you've been paying attention.
2: Uh Yeah, I've played it like one or two hours a bit. I also played the demo a few times, which is what they've mm-hmm. kind of been re-releasing almost. with uh, like Two or three times they've released it, and they've added new kind of secrets and stuff to it each time. And it's first-person horror game in the mode of, I guess, Outlast or Amnesia or, or those games, but with a lot of kind of Resident Evil tropes. Like, there's a bit where you find green herbs in a bin <laughs> and then you can mash that into a thing that you can eat to, to heal after you've been slashed with a chainsaw. So it, 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 it starts out feeling like almost like an art house horror mm. in the line, in the vein of PT or something. But then it kind of after the hour point starts to become much more of a traditional Resident Evil game. Um, uh, but it's just fresh enough and kind of peeled back enough to feel really exciting and, and genuinely scary. And it's it shed a lot of the baggage that series had acquired over the last sort of th- two or three entries. That was a lot of baggage. <laughs> yeah, holy crap. I mean, that series went off the rails. <laughs> um, so, like, Resident Evil 4 was this really brave reinvention of the series, and Resident Evil 4 is just an incredible game. Um, Five was just the kind of uh, super stupid uh, Michael Bay action movie version of Resident Evil 4, and then six was just the pits, unless. Um, <laughs> your uh piece of game register Samuel Roberts who absolutely loved the um mercenaries mode, which is kind of like a horde uh wave survival mode, which always was quite good in four, five and six actually. Yeah. But like, yeah. Yeah. With all that said, it was it was desperately fucked. Yeah. Really. <laughs> like it was just crazy bloated. It was it had been swallowed up by its own mythology and, you know, characters like Wesker and, you know, it's it's just become so many different varieties of mutant, like T z a like all of the mutant virus types of wesker i feel like i've fought so many weskers over the years too many Weskers, and it's, it's great just to be uh, a first person just camera going into a haunted place with mm. a, a dodgy flashlight and some jump scares so in the hour you've played i take it that you haven't been on a like a, a high octane minecart ride not yet okay Anything could happen. Though there are some <laughs> zany aspects of um those are just mad bits of Resident Evil Four that it, the series is already quite crazy by that point. Yeah, yeah. But it you was, do fight a very small Napoleon. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Who turns, turns it to a plant or something? Yeah. I can't remember. People forget that when they talk it about in his castle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, but that it always seemed, somehow the tone of that game is perfect. um, Resident Evil Four because it's just it's the series becoming an action game and it's kind of bought into a kind of certain level of action movie silliness uh, that just works for it and it just hasn't worked since. And they run out of ideas for it quite quickly. Um, but now it's... I mean, it's interesting to just already be seeing the effects that PT has had on mm. uh, designers. This is free demo that Kojima released onto consoles, um, which was this re- just recurring loop where you just go through the same corridors and over and over again. But there are slight changes and just strange puzzles to solve. Uh, and Resident Evil 7 feels very much like that, um, particularly because the demo is the first few rooms of the game itself so going into Resident Evil 7 uh feels like strangely familiar but also still quite scary because I'm used to going through this same part of the house over and over again and experiencing different things and that's a new type of horror that I've not really uh, mm. experienced before in games even though the the kind of stuff it relies on is very very safe horror clichés so it's you know you're deep in Louisiana there's a rickety house and there's some, you know, inbred hit cannibals, yeah. uh, you know, all of that stuff is just in there, just wholesale, just a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just straight, straight up, yeah, like immediately, it is like cabin in the woods style mm. dialer trope, absolutely, kind of and it's, it's not surprising in any, any way yet. Uh, I hope it kind of has some cool monsters and stuff, or some interesting scares, or something that's actually got some sort of intelligence to it, you know, some intelligent horror, like Silent Hill type stuff, Mm. Um, rather than just being a corridor crawler. Though I I suspect that's what it is, really, at heart. Uh, I think it's a very well-made, effective one, so Mm. far. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it kind of escalates.
0: So, even though it's a numbered sequel, I take it there is no
2: connection narratively to... Uh, Not from the outset, though. Apparently, there are kind of little ties, um, and it becomes more explicit as the game goes on mm. uh, and in the demo you pick up a, a picture of a helicopter which has the umbrella logo on an uh, umbrella is the evil science lab that makes all these kind of viruses that mutate people into zombies yeah. and stuff all that nonsense so there's, there's hope you could you, <laughs> could, you could be end up fighting a tiny napoleon <laughs> could, could fight a tiny napoleon plant demon yeah maybe that's how it ends
0: that's exciting i'm definitely gonna give it a go have you found it get that
2: it has become less scary as you've acclimatized to it because i definitely found that with pt yeah definitely that certainly happened like pt has to go to extraordinary lengths to keep you almost interested in it mm-hmm. there's a bit where just it all goes red for a, you know about a half an hour where mm-hmm. a load of the loops you root, loops you do in pt uh, all the lighting has changed and all the pictures are turned into eyeballs looking around like they have to just just go crazy with that environment yeah, to keep yeah. you interested in it uh, and this doesn't quite do that like you always you open the fridge and it's gross you open the microwave and there's a half-cooked crow in there for some reason <laughs> um and it's all the same stuff over and over again it's gross the game is gross as well like it's just if you if you're kind of put off by rotting stuff and just flies and disease and pestilence then uh stay away from resident evil 7
3: hmm.
2: a
0: biohazard
3: the biohazard
2: I mean. yeah they've kind of affected people it's it's resident evil 7 colon by bio, biohazard now isn't it which is the name of the first game in yeah, uh, yeah, of course. That's right. Biohazard in Japan. Yeah, isn't it? so they've, yeah. they've merged both now. Which
0: means, presumably, in Japan, this
2: game is called Biohazard 7. Biohazard. <laughs> Biohazard 7 Resident yeah. Evil. It's nice to have a Resident Evil where there's actually a residence as well. Yeah. It's really going back to the first game, you know. There's a house, it's bad, be careful. That took me so long to get with the evil within,
0: that that oh, name right. basically just means Resident Evil. <laughs> yeah. Like, if if, yeah. the, if the title of the series is, Where's the Evil? And alternatively, Here's the Evil. Is everything going all right with that cardboard box you're climbing into?
1: No, I just wanted to put my feet up, but the the thing wasn't going very well, and I thought you'd complain if I broke your box. But then then it wasn't as stealthy <laughs> as I thought it might be.
0: I just wanted to let the you know anyone listening to this spooky chat in on what was happening in case they believed that the. Pip climbing into a box was coming from inside the house or something.
1: Well, well, maybe we should have. That would have been atmospheric sound effects. That could have been my Foley. Mm. The Mm. evil
2: within the box. Yeah. It's Pip. Mm. (laughs) The chaotic evil.
1: Isn't Foley a type of catheter as well as a type of sound effects? Is it? Yeah, like you get a Foley catheter.
0: I, I Which, I, I don't
1: remember. know, maybe makes just noises.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> like a kazoo.
1: <laughs> like
0: footsteps on yeah. gravel. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like a scrunching. Noise yeah.
0: A melon <laughs> being hit with a fire axe.
1: <laughs> anyway, sorry, you, you go ahead.
0: A, you didn't have a spectacular time with PT, did you,
1: No. No, and none of this sounds appealing either. It no. sounds awful. I
0: feel like we're discussing the game PIP will never, ever, <laughs> yeah, sure. under any circumstances, play.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I stopped listening after horror. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, it's, oh, actually, no, I was listening. But, you know, with Tom saying, oh, you know, PT just gets, you know, you get used to it after a while. No, you don't.
0: <laughs> no, you don't. No,
1: you, ju- you just you don't. You
0: turn green and don't sleep for days is what happens
1: mm. Yes, easy. Yes. So, um <laughs> Yes. I don't think I will be playing that. No. And if you play it, then I, I'm going to make sure you shut the door so that it can't get out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I already had to do that with a Dishonored mask.
1: Yep. Well, you know the drill now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah,
2: so it is shaping up as you have experienced it so far. So far, so good. I'll report back in future pods. Okay, yeah, I I'll, I'll maybe, maybe next week will be a proper... It could go to shit, knowing Resident Evil. It could just go off of a right cliff at any yeah. moment, which, which is is quite of, exciting. I kind of... <laughs> Previously,
0: not for my own enjoyment, but in some sort of broader sense, sort of wanted to. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, I want you. To, I, you know, I'd love someone. Not. I don't want them to actually do this because obviously, like careers and, and livelihoods and and the quality of a series people enjoy is at stake. But you know, like, I want to see the curve that goes from PT style hyper detailed slow exploration of three rooms mm-hmm. of a naturalistic if horrendous house to. Trying to make sure you fire the
2: Stinger missile launcher at Wesker's helicopter in time before he turns into Sea Wesker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh man, and what that arc I'd, would be like that'd be amazing. If they, if that happens, then the reviewers have done a very good job of covering up. Yeah, yeah. If, if that happens, I hope that happens. Oh man, that, that bit, with, bit with the flying squid really jumped the shark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah, um, I'll let you know.
0: That sounds good. Pip, speaking of things people wouldn't expect Pip to play, what we've been playing?
1: Unity of Command. Exactly. Yes. Although I guess that's kind of the point because it was for a new regular or semi-regular thing on RPS called GameSwap where we recommend games to each other that we wouldn't necessarily go for, you know, without that push, Mm. I guess. Like, the rules are that it has to be a genuine recommendation and not a troll. Mm. And so Graham recommended unity of command to me because i think he was hoping that it would be something along the lines of strategy and war games and turn-based stuff that i could actually get something out of as well as perhaps you know being a a way into more complicated games in that field Mm. um so I sat down and played bits of it over the weekend and then today I was playing a bit more and then we had our, had our debrief. Um, but, I mean, I've actually been enjoying it more than I thought I would. It won't be a gateway in any way, shape or form because it it's still too far away from anything that I associate with, you know, grand strategy and proper, like... <coughs> full-on wargaming it's Mm. still very sort of abstracted and sort of almost to the sort of less like military strategy and more like those puzzles you'd get in the papers where you know you've got a a chessboard that's already got some pieces on it and you Mm. have to figure out how to make the winning move or you know how to achieve a certain thing in A certain number of moves it's it's a lot more that kind of way of thinking um it just happens to be wearing world war ii clothes and Mm. talking a lot about stalingrad Mm. so yeah it's it's an odd one in that it really doesn't act as a bridge but it is accessible and Far more so than I thought it would be. Because I, I remember when he mentioned it, I was looking at the page like, Graham, have you lost your mind? <laughs> um, I didn't say that. I was really like positive and can do about it all. I was, yeah, yeah, I'll give this a go. Inwardly, like, you what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it was a nice surprise in that way. And also I think because I don't play any war games really certainly not ones that tend to be based on actual historical conflict so in a really strange way it was a breath of fresh air because i've played so many fantasy games and so many kind of you know like gritty urban settings or you know the like um the 1940s is actually even though it's so prevalent in games it's something that i don't encounter an awful lot of Mm. So, yeah, it was kind of an interesting one, and I have not got far with it at all, and I booted up the manual first and nearly quit out of the entire thing, because it's 45 pages long and you only start learning about how to play the game on page eight. Um, (laughs) What are the
2: first first seven pages
1: about? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Something about Stalingrad again, you know? (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, like this sort of interfacey kind of thing okay. I think. Um but yeah, by that point I was like, oh come on. And so I just booted up and started like the tutorial campaign. Which one
2: is is if I is there any drawing arrows involved?
1: Um I think or you I've can do up. that, but mostly I'm just selecting units and then it shows you the hexes that they can move to okay. from there mm. and like it's orange if you can make a move and things. So
2: it's kind of turn-based. Uh
1: Yeah. World War 2. So it's, yeah, like you are, it's set um, sort of to, it's a bunch of campaigns that take place over the Battle of Stalingrad, Um, and so you tend to spawn into this hex, well, I mean, you do, you spawn into this hex world and it gives you a few objectives that you need to move on to to capture. Um, and then there's just a bunch of different units in different places. And so you have to work out like which trade-offs you're willing to make and, you know, where you can pressure and you've got... um like theatre assets, I think they're called in terms of like airstrikes and supply drops and oh, stuff.
0: I thought you meant like a panto horse
1: or. <laughs> that would have been great. Um, but I think it's more about, so, you know, you, you learn pretty early on that you're essentially trying to just protect your line of supply a lot of the time. Cause otherwise, if you don't, your units get sort of more and more shit. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, they sort of, they, they, eventually lose the ability to attack and things like that there's like i think it's a a a step system or something i really can't remember this was probably in the first eight pages um but it's to do with like you can sort of see the 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 pips on a unit of soldiers and that corresponds to like their movement and attack capabilities and sort of the damage that they can do and how vulnerable they are to attack and stuff. Um, but yeah, and so the majority of it so far has been bashing my head against the AI trying to figure out like how to meet these particular objectives in the timeframe frame allowed and because it's only things like oh you've got six turns to do this in or whatever else it's actually a lot better for me in that I don't ever feel like I'll get to turn 105 and go oh that move that I made you know six days ago is the thing that has now cost me this campaign so I think it it feels like it's manageable chunks and that in turn has switched it from kind of being a broad strategy game and a military command game into a puzzle solving game mm. so and I think again that's why it's not going to act as a bridge to anything more complicated because as soon as you get more complicated you get all of the things that I don't want anything to do with mm. I think um, but yeah so that has been interesting And I've clearly learnt something because I'm getting to, you know, I'm on the second campaign. (laughs) Um, But, oh no, I I finished the second campaign. I'm on the third campaign. Um, But I went back to try the earlier one again, because if you do it in fewer moves you can get other types of victory like you get normal victory but you can also get like decisive victory and brilliant victory and things like that and i'm like i want me one of them maybe i've learned enough that on the first level i could get one of those things and i couldn't i couldn't actually even do it again the second time I was like, <laughs> oh i'm sad now so i don't necessarily know that i've learned much <laughs> about this i know not to like I don't know, send horses into a tank, you know, that mm. that's a trade that's not gonna work. Yeah. Um the thing
3: is, that
2: is the thing that had to be learned. <laughs> so, you know.
1: And to be fair, like if you have the units in adjacent hexes, and you mouse over the one that you're going to attack. It does give you an idea of how outmatched <laughs> that idea. they are. A horse like, looking worried, <laughs> it's just that at some points you're just like, oh well, I'm really close to defeat. Anyway, I might as well throw some horses at this and see whether that solves the what problem. Happens.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I don't cost exactly. And whatever. <laughs>
1: like maybe that'll like maybe this will be the lucky horse that like yeah. turns <laughs> the Battle of the Luke Stalingrad and... or something. I don't know. <laughs> the torpedo um so yeah that's been a weird experience
0: (laughs) i have to admit when you said what game graham had recommended to you i did did think he was trolling you not because you you know you don't enjoy like the complicated puzzles because you do but the idea of you really getting deep into like a quite gray (laughs)
3: like
0: i can yeah you know spending hours invested in a sea of gray little nazi helmets on a huge map of russia
1: I am not a fan of hexes, anything involving hexes, but especially strategy involving hexes. Quite,
0: you like bees?
1: I like hex cells, actually, okay. as well. So, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's refine that slightly. Mm. I'm not very good at... or I, I have no patience for things that are like terrain hexes and strategy games. Mm. And I really don't gravitate towards anything with a sort of real historical setting because that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. and... I, um and I mean you know so sitting down to play this and sort of you know the the first campaign in the list that it gives you you play as the Nazis and I'm like right okay <laughs> and you know having a basic idea of what happened uh, in the battle of Stalingrad you also get slightly uncomfortable but then it just it sort of turns into this thing that is so abstracted hmm. and so kind of difficult to feel any parallels with a real human battle like it's it's that sort of super top level strategizing where it's essentially like it does so much for you you don't have to do much of the granular stuff you're free to sort of have quite a limited tool set and then just try and play with that mm. so I am enjoying that, and we wrote the like the write up of that idea today. And I was playing it this evening, so that's clearly on my own time. Yeah,
0: like you, so, it, you surprised me earlier when you said that you'd you'd already written the thing because earlier on you were playing it, and I, I figured, yeah, you were
1: like, I'm gonna leave you to it. <laughs> yeah, you just keep keep <laughs> so that moving was Moving nice. the little Russians around. Yeah. Mm. So I'm pleased that I played something different. Uh, but yeah, it's it, I I don't see where it would lead other mm. than more puzzle games, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Or maybe something like Fire Emblem. Like, that was the other thing that he recommended, but, mm, you good. know, for DS. Yeah, you, so. should, you should buy Fire Emblem. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, You can borrow my copy. Ah! That's easy.
1: Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask. Yeah. So, fine. <laughs> Brilliant. Maybe Advance
2: Wars? That's really good as well.
1: I didn't get on with Advance Wars. Mm. I think it's because I don't care about machines, and it was mm. like, here's a machine, go do a thing. And yeah. I'm like... Nah. You should play Fire
0: Emblem, because yeah. Fire Emblem <laughs> is just, like, nice pals. Mm. They fighting, but now they're kissing.
1: Do you know why he recommended why this to me, no. to Unity of Command? It was because I'd said that I liked the Banner Saga, and he knows that I can deal with complexity in the form of, like, Dota or whatever. So there is a strategizing mm. element there at work, and... Banner Saga has turn-based combat and I kind of wh- when he explained that I did feel like saying I like the story yeah. <laughs> I would have happily handed it to a child next to me to do that. Hey. No, because I was on the... Do you remember? I was on the plane on the way somewhere and I I had it on my iPad and there was like a little three-year-old who was sat next to me who kept looking over in a really excited way because like the... I think the graphics made it look like a cartoon and I think Mm. he wanted to sort of see the cartoon Mm. and I sort of felt like saying look you'll have just as much luck as I will at this point (laughs) I mean you know things have gone awry (laughs) speaking
0: of um Banner Saga aren't they doing a kickstarter kickstarting Banner Saga 3
3: indeed
2: yes don't know anything else about it
0: no, 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 though That's,
1: there's there's it, a, really isn't it
2: <laughs> more beautiful hand drawn animation yeah more lovely music it's just a beautiful game to be in isn't it Saga?
1: Mm. I love it really atmospheric as well they've yeah. properly like nailed the tone that they were going for I think mm. which is awesome yeah.
2: the cracking game if you haven't played it yeah I played the first one on the iPad and it's beautiful on the iPad Drag mm. and dropping things Oh, it's great. Yeah, Banazaga
0: might be in some ways as close as you get to Fire Emblem on PC. Yeah, Fire Emblem probably said this on the pod before, but it's one of those series that I'm amazed that doesn't have a PC an easy, easily point atable PC equivalent. There's Mm. a niche
2: there for someone to come and just basically rip that off. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because (laughs) Because, I mean, great great ideas.
0: Banazaga almost there, but Banazaga is is quite a sad story, Mm. really.
2: It is quite, it's a bit depressing. It's bleak. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You don't get the moment where like your your friend who you're about to probably marry jumps in front of you to parry a blow and then counter with a fireball or something yeah, which yeah. Fire Emblem does really really well <laughs> yeah it's a soap opera mix with a battle game which, which is, is super nice the best, nice
0: yeah. the best. Mm. Hmm.
1: how exciting
0: hmm.
1: I won't be able to talk about it here obviously
0: no but perhaps on one of our branching spin-offs which is the Fire mm-hmm. Emblem episode we could do that We'd do anything <laughs> we want now
1: what about you what have you been playing I
0: have been playing Blood Bowl 2 which is the second of Cyanide's adaptations of Games Workshop's very old, very well-regarded um, fantasy football, American football game. And I say fantasy football, but not in the sense of fantasy football, but in that it is literally American football played by the races of the, of the old Warhammer universe, so orcs and elves and chaos warriors and so on and so on and so on. And I hadn't really played... But much, I've sort of been fairly aware of for a long time, but I'm now playing in a, uh, a league with various friends, um, including sort of like, you know, former PC gamer folk like Rich McCormick and, and Owen Hill and Chris Pratt from Eurogamer and, and, and many more besides um, like Matt and Kieran and, and so on and Alex. So uh, it's been fun. And there's, people have varying degrees of expertise with Blood Bowl, which goes back to I've literally played this my entire life. And my first act <laughs> as a thinking adult was to buy myself a Blood Bowl set in the 80s to I'm discovering it now, which is, I think, when myself and, and Chris Bratt are with it. And so some of the things I have to say about it to do with the this particular video game adaptation of it, because it is a, a faithful adaptation of the tabletop game. Some of the things I have to say about it are, I guess, about the tabletop game. Um, but Blood Bowl is... is, is super weird because it is it is a, a grid based strategy game about you know blocking and, and tackling and creating zones that enemy players can't reliably get past and increasing the odds that you'll trip someone over and, and that kind of thing and fighting over a ball and trying to get a ball all the way to the opponent's end zone Um and that is you know that is what the ball is but it's uh, and then it, within that there's loads of dice rolls and there's loads of random chance like if you're the type of person who found it frustrating that XCOM made you try and take shots that were really chancy or or had missions that could swing over whether or not your sniper just makes this crazy shot or not. Mm. If that kind of randomness frustrates you, then you should literally never ever play blood bowl under any circumstances because it isn't just a game where, you know, if you run, if you want to run one square further than your player's movement value allows, you can do so, but you roll a dice and well, you don't, you don't roll a dice. The game rolls a dice for you. And on a one, that person just falls on their ass. Um, But it goes further than that if you're playing in a league like we are and you know you have a rotating kind of uh like um you know set of opponents and persistent teams your player could die they could run fall over and die forever and you'd have to pay out of your team's funds to to replace them or go with go go with a person short um and so the theater of it is brilliant because just mad shit is always happening people are fumbling the ball and dropping it and also um in a crazy thing, which seems, seems mental to me, but apparently it works, is, you know, each, it's like a real sport, it has limited time. And so you have eight, each player has eight turns in a given half, and then there's eight turns and then the game ends. And, you know, like sport. Um, if you, if any of your players fuck something up, like fail in their attempt to push somebody over or fumble while picking up the ball or fall over while trying to run a little bit further, you get, a turnover, which means it, your turn
2: immediately ends regardless of how many action points you've got left on any of your people. Yeah, imagine your turn- if you're playing XCOM and you miss a shot, and then the aliens just get to move yeah. the entire alien force until they miss a shot.
0: Yeah, so one thing it forces you to do is is to do things in like descending order of short sure thingness. So, you know, your first move should always be the most reliable thing. Yeah, and there are things that can't randomly fail, like just walking, as long as you're not being, you know, guarded by an enemy player, and as long as you're not going too far. So it's not totally unreasonable, but it can create these crazy swingy moments when things that should be a sure thing fail um, and you don't have any rerolls left, which is one of the ways it mitigates that. And suddenly it's the opponent's turn and that's it. And then on top of that, you have a layer of just like random events that can happen. <laughs> um, so, you know, players can get injured in a million different ways or die, but there are events like a crowd surge or a riot or like brilliant coaching, which might give one player an extra turn and that kind of thing, which can be huge. And sometimes that can be like really kind of interesting in a strategic way and force you to rethink how your how you're kind of um you're gonna approach the game. And sometimes it can be the biggest anti climax ever, as happened uh, yesterday when me and Chris Brack played our game and we were at a very tense one all standoff with two two turns each to go, and because both of our teams are quite slow. Two turns is how long it would take in the best case scenario to score a goal mm. or a touchdown. So like, it was all about every single move mattered if either of us was going to pull ahead and win that match. But then randomly, we had, like, the crowd riot event, um, which removes a turn from both players. So now we only had one turn, so there was no point doing anything right. because <laughs> the game was over. Like, there was no way we either of us could score. It was definitely going to be a draw. And at that point, sticking around to punch enemy players in the hope that you kill them felt like the worst dick move because all we're trying to do is then disadvantage them for the rest of the league. So there's all this kind of, um, sort of randomness and theatre to it. And I don't, I'm not opposed to that at all in a tabletop context because it's really fun. Like it's, it's a really fun hour and a half of sat with a mate watching your silly little men that you've given silly names, um, you know, tackle each other and fall over and sort of the mad stuff happens. And there's, there's just enough strategy there to make it feel like you're really playing a game. But then beyond that, it's a sort of a sea of dice. And if you, uh, for me, I think if you stare into that trying to master it, Trying to like move beyond probability to the point where you can really play it. Hmm. That, that, I I feel that way madness lies. And I fear, I fear for genuinely competitive people who are just getting into this, who are convinced that if they just work hard enough, it won't fundamentally be a game where sometimes the dice are going to fuck you. How is uh, Rich McCormick doing? (laughs) (laughs) Rich McCormick is staying up, painting his Warhammer figures, and meticulously watching every replay <laughs> of every game played in the league. The person I'm more worried about is Quinn's oh, okay. who is approaching this, I think, with a net with a Netrunner player's mind. Oh no. Um
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so he's doomed. Always feel it'll always feel a good Netrunner player. Yeah. But like no, but like but no, I think this will destroy him. Because <laughs> right. it is it is it is madness. It's right? the opposite of Netrunner, the opposite. It is, yeah. And mm. so um in both a Pip sense and a Tom Francis sense. Mm. It's, um, and so the yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of mad. I mean, I say all this and I imagine there are people who are screaming at their podcast players now because I have, you know, real life friends who play football a lot in real life, um, who I've met through tabletop stuff, um, who insist that beyond that sense of randomness only lasts for your first X hundred hours with it. Right. And that beyond that is the glittering land of it's not bollocks anymore. <laughs> Where it is actually this game of pure skill and strategic headroom, and hmm. and you know the game has world championships that are very well attended, and this is in the the real life tabletop version. But by all accounts, there's a there's a, a game there. My best understanding of it, though, is as a um a game that looks more like a real sport than it is, because it literally is a game about sport. It's more like, it's it's basically theatre about sport, which is maybe a strange kind of notion but it's a bit like if you had two people on a stage in a play playing tennis you wouldn't call it a tennis match and that's kind of how i've ended up feeling about bubble it's, it's a story that you generate between two people and it's the ongoing story of your team like i have a i have a beast man who's a bit slow now because he's got a bad leg and i've got a beast man who's got three arms now because he had a very good game um and like and it's all, it's about that ongoing story and telling that story and who wins or loses is not totally immaterial, but probably not worth worrying about too much because sometimes you're just going to... Sometimes it's just going to go, sorry, nah.
1: Where are you in the league?
0: Uh, pretty much squarely in the middle.
1: Hmm. Um, have the people who have been playing it since they were in nappies like done any better? No. Uh, okay.
0: Grills below me and I think he's been playing it for a long time. Um, so <laughs> that ratifies my idea that I think we're in... Which is not to draw, draw back from the achievements of the people who are doing well at all, but it does feel like a sort of soup of weird things.
2: Maybe it's one of those things where, like, it feels like a league is exactly the right way to play that game, where you just get loads and loads of um games in, which means loads and loads of dice rolls. So over the long, longer period with enough dice rolls, like the probabilities play out more predictably and maybe over the course of the long league the skill really shows through by the end.
0: I think a few years of,
2: well, no, a year and a half, I guess, of
0: very regularly rolling dice in a competitive context, I now just accept that spikes will happen and sure. weird things that shouldn't happen will happen. like, um, And that games will sometimes hinge on chance. Um, I think if you're not necessarily that ready for it, it can be really frustrating. It's interesting as a game, though, to focus on the computer game side of it because as an adaptation, it's, it's quite, the production value is quite high. Like, they put a lot of effort into it um there's um it's all a bit it's you know if i say games workshop video game with the exception of the few of them that have really crested above Mm -hmm. the the sort of standard of production set by most of them like dawn of war and and maybe vermintide really stand out as like great games made in that universe and total war actually um there's a lot of like quite six seven out of ten ish
1: I was gonna say there's a soup of six out of ten games workshop yeah, licenses.
0: And I think this is a you know, this is a solid representation of the core rules. Um, but it's got a little bit of that six out of ten ish packaging. Like it has the uh, the announcers or the blood bowl announcers who talk fucking constantly. And fair play to them, they recorded a lot of commentary for that game, but at the same time, all of the jokes are like just a little bit south of really funny hmm. in the way that i i sometimes find quite a lot of warhammer humor to be to be fair like...
1: have you listened to sports commentary no, no actually yeah and it's sort of it's
2: quite well observed but it's like li- yeah yeah i know what you mean i think the trouble is like the warhammer humor is supposed to be good on paper and also when you're kind of joking about it with your friend while you're playing a game you're not necessarily yeah supposed to be exposed to it with voice actors and stuff it's, inter- it's interesting because it's, it's the kind of joke i can imagine working if you were
0: around a table in the pub playing this. Yeah. And it's equally the kind of joke I can imagine working if you were reading about it in the pages of White Dwarf or something. But there's something about actors performing Warhammer knob
2: gags that has never really worked. It's really weird. Like, I, I get the same thing with Discworld stuff as well. Yeah. Where I, I feel like on the page, it, 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 it's so much funnier than when I hear it kind of being acted at me or see it being acted at me in a, in a drama. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to work somehow. It's quite weird.
0: And Discworld's such a massive influence on Warhammer. Yeah, like, sure. I think that, yeah. you know, there's a there's lineage there. Um, so yeah, um, and it has like a campaign that you can play through as one time team to le- learn the ropes. It does quite a good job of removing whole game mechanics until you're kind of ready to learn about them. Hmm. But what that does mean, if you play like the first three missions and then jump into a skirmish or into a multiplayer yeah, game, you're, you're probably fucked because you, it hasn't told you what it hasn't told you. Um, and, and it has some, it has a weird interface. Like it has the kind of interface that I don't know how. There are things about the menus and the team creation process and just the process for doing things where it's largely fine, but when something doesn't make any sense, it really makes no sense whatsoever. Like um occasionally, randomly, the confirmation button. If you get, you know, if you get a pop-up window on a computer that wants you to confirm something, and it's like okay and cancel. Okay is universally on the left and cancels on the right. Yeah. This is a game that mixes that up sometimes just to <laughs> okay. <fuck> with you. <laughs> like, nice. Um and um Little things like after you've created and named a team, and and maybe bought players or whatever, you were never allowed to rename anything ever again. But you can change your team's motto. <laughs> okay. And so what people do is they might buy a cat player and not realize they missed the opportunity to name them or change what their head looks like or something, hmm. and not realize you've lost that opportunity forever. And because it's a persistent game, yeah, a bit harsh. You that? have to. You can't sell that person back. You have to like put the muck in the market in order to get someone you can rename. Hmm. And so there's lots of janky stuff like that. There's like in, in in and and you know I'd like to to its credit, it's really cool that it has this functionality to run a league that it will manage for you. Like I'd love more games to adopt stuff like yeah, that. that's right. It's cool. been a it's the best way to play that game by miles, and it's created like a lovely new chat room to be in mm-hmm. with people that I wouldn't normally chat to as much as I do, even though if everyone's just bemoaning the fate of their latest <laughs> casualty, um, and it's great that it lets you do that. But it just feels like it's like a polish pass from being as good as people you know to to fully live up to the reputation of the game that it's built on top of because like
2: I don't yeah, it looks really nice um I like the effort they've invested in animations and yeah just general kind of it's quite shiny um i I'm also very glad they just faithfully translated the rule set because um, another studio did more time mm-hmm. and they sort of made a very strange game sort of based on what more time originally was. And I kind of wanted to play the board game, but in you know a more manageable fashion with cool graphics. And to that extent, it feels like blood bowl two has succeeded. And uh, you know, those original games were popular because of the design as much as anything else, like the way that they're put together. So it's nice not to have a kind of weird, bastardized computer video game version of it so mm. it's nice to have the actual rule set represented in the video game form
3: yeah and
0: because it, it feels you know it feels really transferable like i could go and play bubble now yeah and i understand what what's going on with it um but yeah like and maybe that is where some of the, the complexity and some of the problems come from is there are things that like there's the most absurd animation for when you because the way it works is one player deploys their their team and the other player deploys their team in, in response to it based on who's on attacking, who's defending. Um, and when you move a player, there's this absurd, like, Star Trek beaming up, beaming down animation, which I can't imagine why it's there. Because <laughs> all it's doing, is replacing what would be the most natural thing in the world in a tabletop game, which is just moving a model with your hand. And they obviously had, they felt they need to do something. They could have a giant hand. Yeah, they probably should have had a big hand come down and pick them up, or yeah. we'll just have the player run over to mm. the place you've just moved them to. That would be one way of handling that. Yeah. They but, could
1: have had the hand of Gork.
0: Yeah, indeed. I think that is actually a thing. Isn't it? No, there's
1: a foot of Gork.
0: Is there a fist of Gork? Maybe. Yeah, there's supposed to be bipeds so, with hands. There's supposed to be all of the rest of Gork as well. But yeah, no, that's... I think we should all just have a pause to appreciate Pip's on point Warhammer <laughs> Law reference.
3: <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I was
0: going to ask about um, Mordheim, actually, because I, I haven't played it, but because I asked you,
2: is this actually Mordheim? And you said... No, um <laughs> i've not played it i need to um i want we need to dip back into it because i played it in early access right and so i've no idea what they have fixed about it uh, but it was very odd <laughs> i found it very odd kind of conversion of it the stuff they've kept in it like um the, one of the best things about more is the progression between uh each kind of mission uh where your characters can get arms lopped off and that affects their skills and mm. you know um sometimes you can fix better arms on and stuff like that. So there's a very kind of quirky progression element, which they were supposed to simulate, but it wasn't in the build that I was playing. So I'd have to go back and see how it all really works. Yeah. To actually make a judgment.
0: Because actually, like, one thing this experience with Blood Bowls taught me is I'd actually I'd love, like... I'd like, uh, love Mordheim, but with a persistent campaign multiplayer mm. option. Yeah. So not just, like, one... I, I don't know if the new game supports that. Mm. Because that that is the thing. Like, this would it's a it's a good Blood Bowl game because it supports leagues and because it supports the way that game is best played. For sure. The way Mordheim is best played is when you have like six or seven people you know mm. who are all playing campaign games against each other and levelling up separately and coming together in different configurations. Yeah. And that game doesn't exist on PC as far as I know.
2: If it does, I'd love to know about it because that, that is something I would, I would love to play. Yeah, for sure. And, and then Maybe more times that. There's also a new Necromunda game coming up, which is also yeah. kind of 40k Skirmish combat. though I'm not sure that I had the same progression elements because I'd never played it. I think it did.
0: I think it, was, it wasn't more time. Basically, just Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah, Mordheim. that's. I think that was the idea of it. For sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. because right, they I mean they basically have the same name, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like name after Death, the Death Town and <laughs> Death Town. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Like yeah. Nice. A um, Death Planet and Death Town, I guess. But yeah, so that's what I, I I've been doing. Um I've been punching punching little rats and punching little dwarfs. And losing all my games. Or drawing.
1: Who wants a question? It's Weeders. me! Okay.
0: <laughs> Let's do questions. <laughs> there we go.
1: Okay, you tell we've had several attempts at this? <laughs> <laughs> Time for a
0: question. Who wants a question? Ooh, do you question. want a to question, Tom? <laughs> yes. All right. So just a question. Let's do it. Uh, okay. Drew writes... Overwatch's fourth seasonal event starts today. Fruity semicolon Is there an upward trend in cosmetic DLC in games and what do you think of it? So it's not really clear whether this means upward trend in terms of the quality or, or the price upward, or the price or the frequency or the quantity. Yeah. So um I think it's you know it is I think the answer is yes to the first part completely like there is a lot more Of these, you know, big cosmetic DLC events happening around games. And on the whole, the quality of them is improving.
1: Some and some.
0: You mean, you know, they've become more elaborate. There's more tied in. There's, you know, the experiments have been done and people have settled on what works. So, you know, these Overwatch seasonal events, you know, lots of games do this. So, you know, I'd say that there's definitely a a trend. Uh, In terms of what do I think about it? I, I don't care, which is not to dismiss the the thing. It's just, I mean, you know, Overwatch is a perfectly fine game, but these, like, the promise of a time limited hat is even for me not a draw.
2: I think it's great in the sense that it could be so much worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> having come out of an era where you know lots of monetization experimentation has happened with free to play, and it's mostly been awful, this is probably the best, the, like, the least harmful to the game experience of most of the Mm. monetization mechanisms you can expect to see
1: i think i tend to enjoy cosmetics when it's about me choosing things to dress my you know favorite characters up in and so dota's system especially when i can just pick what i want to get I quite like and also there hasn't been a fee for owning the game in the first place so i kind of feel like that's part of my way of saying i have spent upwards of a thousand hours on this thing so here is some money for for making that experience and mm. to sort of augment my relationship with it whereas with overwatch it's like well, I've already paid for this once. <laughs> and so I think it doesn't quite have that same I would like to do a nice thing mm. element to it. Or, you know, like I want to somehow support the work that has been done or, you know, the work of third parties in the case of, you know, the the Dota workshop and stuff like that. Um But the other thing is that because I just sort of don't really play Overwatch anymore and I don't feel the pull to. Like, none of these events have particularly made me want to come back. Like, I've sort of (sighs) looked at the things that you could get, maybe, and, I mean, I don't really want any wall sprays or, you know, any of Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And maybe some of the outfits would be nice but you're not guaranteed to get them and so then it just becomes a kind of oh well it's either a money sink or a time sink and the game for me right now just isn't enjoyable enough to to warrant that Mm. and so it's not going to get me to to come back in the way that i might if it was a different kind of game or asking for a different (laughs) investment or even if i could just buy a few of the things that i would quite like straight up
0: mm. i'll tell you what i definitely prefer it when there's like a seasonal event that just changes something about the game that everyone can see and then goes away again at the end of that thing like like counter-strikes silly little chicken costumes where you have the little halloween chicken or the christmas chicken or something
1: over christmas um do you remember they also had the the lights the christmas fairy lights that were like strung over you know, the, the kill screen, so you'd watch somebody teabagging you, but there would be a festive, yeah. you know, tableau like in, that, in, you that know, framed it.
0: Um, Roshan wears a Christmas hat for the duration of Christmas in Dota. Yeah. It's not a cosmetic, it just does. And then and it in goes League away of again.
1: Legends, they figured out how to make the snowscape in yeah. the new map and uh, stuff that's... like that. Which I think really I prefer cool.
0: that kind of thing, because it makes it feel special when you log in, but then it goes away again. Because, like, it, it, I I have actually started playing Overwatch again, um, and I am enjoying it. But um, the other day, it, it first scared the shit out of me and then slightly kind of, you know, ruined the atmosphere of the game a bit to, to, you know, be in the spawn room waiting for the match to start and hit to hear some particular pre-recorded bit of dialogue between the Zenyatta on my team, the kind of robot monk, and I think Genji, like they have a lot of different lines to each other. And I looked, I couldn't see Zenyatta, and then I realized that Zenyatta... Was the levitating, horrifying wooden toy man <laughs> floating behind me? Because they were, he was wearing the Christmas skin that mm. I'd seen. That stuff is all in the game now, so occasionally you're going to be killed by Christmas Lucio, even though it's Chinese New Year. And like, it gets messier and kind of also kind of spoils the sense of it as a Christmas treat in a way. I think, yeah. like, you know, you will be seeing Christmas costumes when Halloween rolls around. And when Christmas rolls around again, you're going to be seeing last year's Christmas costumes mixed with this year's Christmas costumes. And it'll just sort of accumulate, I think. Whereas I do prefer it when there's just like a fun one-off thing that you can participate in. But I guess that tends to be free, and, and free is not what they're aiming for here. So.
1: I think there's a certain like appeal to something being time limited and you having a version of it and someone else not, you know, that's sort of always been mm. part of sort of certainly the, the limited edition cosmetics. People would just be like, well, you know, look at my fancy, this, that and the other, you know, it's why you got all of those messages when you got that loot drop at the
0: international international,
1: yeah. you know, it's like, oh, fancy thing, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I get that people definitely want it.
1: It's a yeah. Question of, yeah but I think in certainly in the case of overwatch they haven't done it in a way that I find appealing or that encourages me back into the game in any way you know I kind of look at the thing and go oh okay that's an interesting screenshot of a person in an outfit you know but yeah. it doesn't make me think and now I will go and play overwatch because
0: yeah like log in to try the new modes because I know they are doing new play modes with each Of these updates as well. But...
3: Mm. 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 Mm
0: -hmm. Peter writes... And this is sort of related, I guess. Whenever marketing comes up on the pod, it's rarely in a positive light. Who, in your opinion, is doing
2: it well? Mm. I guess there are two perspectives you can come at this question with. So there's the kind of what's effective mindset... Um, in which case a lot of things that are quite shitty are actually quite effective in yeah. marketing terms. Um, but maybe from our personal perspectives, as people who like games and just want to know what the games are mm. and what you know they look like and how they play, then that's a different perspective entirely. So I guess we should probably go with the second one.
1: Well, yeah. I think, yeah, because we have a very different experience of marketing departments and things, because, you know, obviously in this job, sometimes we're asking questions that are not positive things about the game and so you know sort of trying to negotiate your way towards actually getting any kind of an answer is fraught and you know that's why you so often get you know we We reached out to these people for comment. We will let you know if they get back to you. You know, and I think that comes into contact with, uh, into uh, conflict with marketing strategies because marketing strategies are about getting out particular messages and not focusing on particular points and sort of making sure that people, you know, know what the game is, but also that they, you know, see it in a positive light and want to, to buy it and things. And a lot of our job is sort of trying to strip that away to the point where we don't feel we're misleading people when we talk about mm. things
2: yeah so marketing is like really really phased so there'll be like one particular aspect or vision of the game they want to go out and then the, uh, anything else about the game will just be completely blanketed and not talked about until the next phase until the phase has come where that, that's ready to be talked about yeah like uh, March is the plasma gun <laughs> and uh, yeah, June precisely. is the grenade launcher and then we'll do a three stage class reveal and uh, bi-weekly intervals um, <laughs> the problem comes when if in the opening phases just the basic outline of what people are getting for their potential investment isn't there then people start to invent games in their heads and then you get you yeah. know no man's sky and a lot of other very similar games where you know if you, if you, people feel like the marketing is over-promised and under-delivered
3: mm.
2: uh, but i don't know, in terms of who's done it well I, some of the worst i've seen the worst i've seen recently in the recent years has been evolve yeah, where the marketing just just so utterly destroyed the core concepts of that game with just uh, cross-purpose deals and DLC packs, and who knows what the fuck you were getting when you were buying that game. You know, yeah, you know yeah, how many is. people you know who was included, who wasn't, what the hell you even did with these characters, who they were. I mean that that was that was just absolutely... It was abysmal it was really hard to penetrate its press let alone if you're a fucking customer yeah
1: it, uh, it, like there's that marketing phrase of being on message they were on like 12 different messages and neither <laughs> no one, of the messages were no in the same language it was so
2: odd <laughs> in terms of good um examples like one of the best i've encountered was actually overwatch when blizzard revealed overwatch they just came out the game was basically ready and you could play it straight away and they were just very clear about what it was. They actually, they, they couldn't say whether it was going to be free to play or whatever because they hadn't decided yet. Um, but in terms of, oh, it's a team shooter and these are what the characters are like and here's our vision for it and how we wanted to evolve, that was all in place like immediately. And you could play it and they were happy for you to play it and take your impressions outwards because they were confident that it was probably already quite good. Yeah.
0: It's like the best marketing is often the simplest, but you can only do straightforward marketing if you have a straightforwardly good and appealing thing that you're making yeah so given that i think one of the reasons we're often so critical of marketing is that marketing is often the art of covering up something severe on <laughs> yeah. flaws, and that is you know so if it's doing it's if it's doing really well it's doing something bad hmm. whereas you know i think like my favorite my favorite acts of marketing are always the ones that get out of the way and let the game Sell itself, like um, my favorite kind of moment. I think I'm probably talked about this at the time. My favorite kind of moment in a press trip, in the five years I've been doing this, was seeing Alien Isolation revealed. And I think um, Creative Assembly have always had a bit of a coy streak when it comes to marketing. I think like Mm. they, you know, they've done that recently with the Halo Wars game they're making, um. But they they kind of gave us like a ten minute chat about the original movie and kind of what it meant and like a sort of like film theory one oh one and sci fi one oh one thing, which if you've been a game journalist for any length of time is is total alarm bells because we don't have anything to show. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you know we're going to show you one piece of concept art and talk at you, mm. and then they're like, well, we're done with this now. All right, off it, off on your own, and then we were just ushered into rooms by ourselves and told to play it for now. An and you know, having gone from not expecting to see you may even see it moving to them having the confidence to put us alone in rooms at the game and have us play it for an hour was very effective at giving a positive impression of the game to the extent that that is marketing in that context. But that again would have completely backfired had the game been bad. Yeah. And if the game had been bad or unfinished or unready for that, they would have simply gone back to the same dance that people normally do. So like tricky, you know, like, mm. Blizzard's interesting because I think they've, I think they've learned a lot about talking to their community and they've gotten a lot better about being open with their community. But the marketing side of Overwatch is, you know, it is, it is like that, that dichotomy that you raised at the start is every part of that at once. (laughs) Like it is a brute force attempt to ensure that something is a cultural phenomenon by spending a vast amount of money on it. You know, Overwatch didn't kind of earn its, I don't think it initially earned its kind of, um, Sort of prestige through just quality or or originality it earned it through extremely aggressive marketing and the kind of accumulated brand awareness that has attached itself to so blizzard over decades of marketing for all of their other games and the qual and admittedly the quality of their other games but you know, like, yeah. it had a head start in life thanks to millions of dollars yeah, for sure. Yeah. being a Blizzard game.
1: Didn't and, they also position it? I mean, Battleborn's a bad game, but yeah. I mean, as in, it's not an enjoyable game by my metrics, but I mean, didn't um, Overwatch sort of end up as a kind of, hey, by the way, we're releasing this, you know, sort yeah. of, um, I, I can't remember exactly the way around it was, but it, uh, I know that the timing certainly favored overwatch
0: <laughs> well i mean you know if we want to talk about i mean apparently we were, what we're going to talk about instead of marketing that we have uh, admired <laughs> we're going to talk about disaster marketing for hybrid shooters but um God, yeah. the, Battleborn was battleborns terrible. the the randy pitchford tweet which i can't remember off the top of my head yeah the should tweet show notes it because it's pretty spectacular like. <laughs> you know, Battleborn is Meta Growth and hobby-grade co-op mm. and th- six other things besides, that was one of the most spectacularly misfired. I mean, the recent thing they did with these, I mean, so I don't know who did what in this, so I'm just gonna air quotes and allegedly around this, but it really looked like they tried to make a Battleborn porn subreddit happen. Do you see this? Oh, the Battleborn no. thing. So, um, like, uh, Randy Pitchford tweeted something like, you know, I'm just saying, looks like there's some, looks like some people are setting up like a battle porn community on Reddit. Cheeky link over to the not safe for Reddit, not safe for work porn. Not safe sub- for Reddit. Safe that's, Reddit. Some, that's some quite <laughs> Yeah, no, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> porn subreddit. But then people realized that the subreddit had only been created about three hours before he tweeted oh. and had like no members. So how the hell did he know about it?
1: To be fair, he might have Google Alert set up. I have that's one for Angela Lansbury. That's true.
0: So, you know, so there's no guarantee that it had been created as a, marketing, as a marketing thing. It definitely, definitely backfired.
1: On the more sort of things that we have liked side of things, I really enjoy reading through people's dev blogs. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of more of a, I guess, a soft marketing or things that, you know, people put out there on their own websites and sort of, it's to sort of repeatedly update and engage and, you know,
3: Mm. um,
1: all of that kind of stuff. But I do really find it fascinating when somebody's talking about, oh, here's how we did the artwork here or here's why this particular reward loop works or doesn't work or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And sometimes people do sort of guest editorials for places like, um, oh, what's it called? Sutra and places. Mm. Um, And so I do think that that kind of stuff is is more what I enjoy and I think that's because there's a an honesty to it it's kind of you know it's still ultimately driving people's attention back to the games and still sort of has often either a positive slant or is about a particular element rather than the game as a whole and so you know but but it's a point where you are often sort of confronted by a person or a department's actual enthusiasm and some insight you know Mm. and i find that really really interesting like we mentioned the um the seasonal maps and things um and quite recently uh the league of legends team put up a blog entry about how they made the snow effect in their because they they redid summoner's rift which is the main competitive 5v5 map um and because they'd sort of done all the artwork by hand it was going to then be a massive task to actually sort of make seasonal versions of that because it wasn't just about reskinning something with different tiled textures um and so they were actually explaining about how they'd experimented with different sort of ways of grouping texture uh, grouping tones and things and by altering you know particular color values within that you'd end up with like a snow effect even though it wasn't really mm. and so it, it's stuff like that that is still you know putting forward a particular i guess positive version of your game but it is also coupled with expertise or enthusiasm that is coupled to that game and explains a thing
0: Mm. i do like um i do like the when sort of so a couple of developers recently have used youtube in inventive ways um i think the numenera tied to numenera developers did a kind of quest through youtube where you sort of watch the next video to see the next step of the quest based on your decisions to kind of replicate that i know they did that for dishonored one and two i think That kind of thing is
1: kind of cool. Also, um, some Kickstarter campaigns have had absolutely like stunning, um, uh, like, you know, the pitch bit Knights and bikes had an amazing section of just, you know, they, they infused the whole thing with like this very particular tone that they are clearly going for in the Mm. game itself. Um, that kind of enthusiastic sort of lo-fi kind of 80s kids movie kind of attitude. And so there were like, you know, little illustrations and GIFs and the whole thing just sort of fizzed with energy. Mm. And I thought that that was really cool because I was happy to just write about, you know, a, a Kickstarter done well in that it was interesting to me that how they had achieved that um being personable. Mm. in what is essentially a funding pitch
0: mm. uh, Kane writes what is the worst keybinding mistake of all time and why is it Bethesda's decision to put melee attack and throw Molotov cocktail on a single key in Fallout 4
1: <coughs> that seems really dumb
0: yeah that is pretty dumb
1: I had a thing because I after I talked about how I didn't think i'd ever played deus ex it turns out i have played a bit of human revolution and i think i played like the first mission i didn't get any further than that because i think mm. i got bored and then forgot it existed um but it's that one where you have to defuse a bomb i think
0: yes the gas bomb in the first mission yeah,
1: yeah i think so and i was playing it with my control pad because you know mm. and what happened was i couldn't remember what unequip was and so both times i tried different buttons just trying to remember what that was because people were getting antsy with me you know brandishing whatever it was in their faces Mm. um and in one instance i think i punched someone in the face or performed a brutal takedown or something yeah Yeah, that was one thing that happened when I was trying to defuse the situation is I kind of made it worse and then took someone down in a really brutal way. Um, And the other thing that happened was I tried to unequip but instead I pressed the button. I think it was the right bumper and that throws like one of those uh, concussive mines or whatever it is. Mm. And Because we were standing really near the bomb, (laughs) that went off, (laughs) and then it triggered the bomb, and then everyone died. Right. So, Mm. uh, yeah, that was uh, not my finest hour. But also, I still don't know what the unequipped button was. (laughs) So.
2: I have a terrible time with controllers that bind crouch to clicking in one of the sticks.
3: Mm.
2: Um, Because whenever I'm scared or stressed... I, I crush my controller with my tiny hands uh, <laughs> and immediately, like, so if something frightening happens, my character sort of crouches down almost as though they're going into fit position. That's quite appropriate. <laughs> Which is quite appropriate, but fucking annoying because I can't actually deal with anything.
1: Isn't it usually, like, to run? Because I, I always find that, like, if if I click in, I'm expecting to run yeah. fast.
2: Yeah, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. If it's yeah. run, that's good. I can handle that. But if it's crouch, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. You're willing to clench to sprint, but not clench to crouch. Absolutely, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> if my fear response gets me out of the scary situation, that's good.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like you want fight or flight. You don't want like crunch. fight and then
2: just be in the way of danger until dead. <laughs> don't
1: want. Don't want fall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: fight or fall.
0: <laughs> I can think of one. Really, I've had lots of embarrassing control scheme
2: mishaps but they're really my fault rather than the game there's some bad ones there's like uh, the old and M- M- metal gear games where um they had like playstation 2 pads and they had like pressure sensitive keys mm. so if you lightly press x and uh snake would you know hold them in a chokehold. um if you pressed it too hard it would slit their throat or something or choke <laughs> them out it's just like you know I don't know how the hell hard you want me to push this button to not kill this man. <laughs> so it's totally random what would happen. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Stephen's sausage roll also does this irritating thing where you use the, um, I think it's that you use the arrow keys, but like... Forward and backwards are forwards and backwards in the direction that you are facing. But left and right, they don't strafe. They make you turn oh, yeah. clockwise. So it's, I think it's more that it's relational rather than oh, yeah. anything else. And so I, I can't remember the exact problem that i was encountering but it was something that happened sufficiently often and my brain never quite got used to it that i would end up needing to restart sections or go back or whatever because it was like oh well i guess i've now got myself into an impossible situation because i forgot
0: i do think none of these are possibly as dumb as melee attack and throw molotov cocktail being the same
2: no, I don't recall but, that being the case.
0: But I don't know how really context that is. Because yeah. if it is context contact-sensitive, then I think that's probably reasonable. Because yeah. what is a Molotov cocktail but a punch far away? With fire. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I don't really agree with that now that I've said it. But no. I said it, so let's move on. <laughs> Jonathan writes, Hey, CNC, just to reminisce about Time Commanders a bit more, there was one really interesting aspect to the original series. So this, uh, for clarity, if you didn't listen to a previous episode, is the BBC's now-renewed um historical warfare game show series that runs off Total War, yes. basically. Uh It ran from to- September 2003 to March 2005, whereas Rome Total War launched in September 2004, so the entire first series existed for a year before Rome even launched. Creative Assembly provided a special build of their tactical engine for use in the series, but because of BBC rules, they were not allowed to say what game it was, for that would be essentially advertising. So you can imagine watching the show as a fan of the sprite-based Total Wars and thinking, oh my god, what's this? I must have this game. Then scanning the credits trying to find out what it was. Software provided by Creative Assembly. I don't think I'd even seen magazine previews for Rome at this point, and it would be a year before anyone could buy it. After a rocky launch and a patch or two, it turned out to be the most beloved Total War game, and for a while you could only see it on a BBC TV show. Is this a question, regards, Jonathan? It's not a question, but it is interesting. It's interesting, kind yeah. of a mad thing that happened. Talking about marketing,
1: yeah,
0: hmm. it's both spectacular. Like it is the most spectacular kind of inclusion of a, a product in a kind of mainstream piece of entertainment you can think of. And then you have the BBC specific <laughs> stipulation. <laughs> you you know, I'll tell people what it is, yeah. um, which like, that might be a really alien concept if you're not British. I, I actually yeah, wonder if, because I, I don't believe there's any American it's channel complete. that has a complete prohibition on showing a product. Yeah, the BBC struggle with this. <laughs> <laughs> Having to actually, you know, film reality a lot of the time. Yeah, very careful. Well, it's definitely a challenge that will hit as they do esports, say that. Yeah, goodness me. Um like, uh, yeah, like, it's just a, a funny thing. But yeah, there's a sort of, there's no other circumstance I can think of where a barely announced revolutionary sequel to a new game has just been quietly on television for a year for a year <laughs> what a scoop right there on national television right, it's going to turn out that like I don't know Greg Wallace is Half-Life 3 and he's just been there oh, on, no. on television God, hope all this time <laughs> awful
3: <laughs>
0: I don't know why I chose Greg it's a Wallace dark really. future yeah. we live in a dark future don't. Oh, no, we do actually <laughs> forgot that nothing's off the, nothing's off off the off the table now no in terms of what could happen Indeed. But no, thank you for your email. That is interesting. Oscar writes, hi, podcast. Hello. I really think Pip as chaotic neutral makes the most sense. Because Um. Sarah is chaotic neutral and that's who Pip would be if she were a Dragon Age character. Definitely chaotic and mostly good because she's fighting with, concerned with fighting for the downtrodden, but also a bit evil because of pranks. It's no question. Cheerio.
1: Are there lots of pranks in Dragon
0: Age 2? Yeah. Dragon Age Inquisition, uh, this is, not 2. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty pranks and bants-heavy game.
1: Like, what kind of pranks are we talking about? Is it like, you know, buckets of water on the top of doors? Or It's is not it... really like
0: pranks you see. It's like written into the dialogue, right. so it's like stuff that's happened when you've been away from the base for a while and you hear about it. Like, that like kind what? of thing. I can't remember off the top of my head. There's a lot of bants. There's a lot of pranks-related bants.
1: I really don't remember bants.
0: Really? You only played like the first couple of hours of Dragon Age One, though.
1: Yeah, it was very much swampy.
0: Yeah, there was some there was some light banter. There you was in...
1: swamp, and there was also a really terrible thing that happened to one of the characters of in my acquaintance. Yeah, really early on. Yeah,
0: there's some terrible stuff. But when you you know settle into your relationships with characters, there's quite a lot of bants in Dragon Age. Hmm. It's any like any story, it has it has its serious moments, it has its. Well, the
2: experience lost, light and they moments. have to learn to bant again. Yeah, exactly. It like, takes time. You have to banter together. <laughs> In this moment of crisis,
0: that's a lot of bants. I
1: oh, see. Uh, oh,
0: yeah, I can, I can sort of see that. Um, I, for a while, I, you know, when I was playing Dragon Age, there's a character that reminded me of you, and now completely no longer does because um, she's a a, fr- a friendly team player.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not really any of my skill sets. No, is it? No.
0: Mm. So yeah, thank you for your contribution to the "Is Pep Evil or Not" debate. Thank you. We haven't fully resolved that yet.
1: But So neutral is just maybe.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just normal, side. isn't it? Chaotic no, chaotic neutral, like so lawful neutral is 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 perpetually maybe. Right. In the words of <laughs> um but um uh, That's not how that song goes. <laughs> no. Um but um but chaotic neutral means that you end up neutral because you are sometimes good and sometimes evil. Okay. That that's more interesting. If that makes sense as a distinction.
1: You just even out. It's fine. You yeah. give some money to charity, Next. you kick someone. Yeah. Right.
0: That that and that okay. is Okay. Yeah, we're kind of zooming in on. We've located Pip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Make some buns, have a tantrum. Yeah. It's fine.
0: Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah. good. Um Brian writes. Recently, I found myself really wanting to get into Rainbow Six Siege, but I find the idea that I'll need to interact with other humans completely anxiety-inducing, and the thought drives me away. It's not that I have a problem interacting with other humans, more so that I have a problem interact. Oh, hang on. I more so that when I game, I simply want to be solitary. I spend most of my day interacting with my users as I'm a MC and upon going home, I want nothing more than to shut people out and have them leave me alone. I have a friend with whom I work closely, and he's always gaming with friends and consistently invites me to play Siege or Heroes of the Storm. But I always bow out as I'd rather be left alone. Part of the reason for this, I believe, is the fact that I like to go at my own pace. In my day-to-day life, I find myself needing to acquiesce to the demands and needs of other humans. When I sit down to game, I simply want to go at my own pace and take my time to explore or take in the world. My question is this. What is your gaming style? Would you prefer to go alone so that you can go at your own pace? Or do you like to game with others? Is there something wrong with me? that as soon as I am informed that a game is primarily cult, my interest drops to zero. Thanks. Brian.
1: So I have a solution to Brian's problem, which is that he play Rainbow Six Siege with the people for whom he is being a systems admin. (laughs) Because, you know, if he's going to be multiplayering at work, you know, in terms of concepts and interactions, maybe he could get them involved in playing some Rainbow Six Siege.
0: Yeah, I think I think the question was, can I play this at home? Because I, I assume he's busy during his work hours.
1: Well, now you're just being difficult. I've come <laughs> up with a perfectly good solution.
0: Well, play Rainbow Six Siege while you're at work instead of doing your job.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're in the more social frame of mind.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: No, see. That's, I see.
1: You know, I do
2: see where you're going with that. Yeah. It seems like he has a connection with gaming being quite just a solitary, hmm. you no, know, um, meditative, explorative.
1: Mm.
2: experience
1: some people play heroes of the storm like that <laughs> I tell you that <laughs> yeah
0: you can play around with succeed with bots as well i think mm. that's the thing but it's not really a whole experience
2: I, think uh, I, f- Sorry, I see what it means. yeah no i, I do agree and i i'm not a huge fan of competitive games anymore really very much but um i enjoy co-op but sometimes have turned down co-op in, in you know invitations when i've been enjoying a single-player experience or in a more solitary frame of mind. So it's interesting how the, your mood affects the type of games that you enjoy. At any yeah,
0: it's settled to me in that I play a lot of multiplayer games and I like them, but they make me sad sometimes. And they play... um They still love single-player RPGs, although so they don't play as many of them as I used to simply because of time. But I still love being immersed in a single-player game, being able to be solitarily immersed in something like that. Yeah. And But somewhere between those two totally opposed extremes is co-op and i don't like co-op
1: i really like co-op and huh mm. yeah and
0: so that's you know and, and for me that's because if i'm in a world and being told a story i don't want someone else there
1: well i don't like co-op with you
0: no <laughs> you're that's... awful
1: you get weirdly competitive in co-op i don't you do like when oh. we were playing Diablo three, and you were just like, "Come on, over here! Like, let's go, let's do this quickly! Like, you why haven't you Dahlia. sorted out your inventory yet?" I'm just like, "Because I've never played this before, and I'm enjoying the world." And you're just like, "Yeah, but it's over here. Come here." <laughs> it's like, oh,
0: di- Diablo is a, a very frustrating game if you don't have exactly the same
2: playstyle as the person you're playing with. Yeah, that's a kind of a, di- a design flaw, Diablo. I would say actually that. It, <laughs> Everyone has to be going at the same pace and have the same amount of inventory in their, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff in their inventory at all times in order to to avoid friction. So it feels like that's the thing that could be solved about Diablo, actually. But this
1: happened again with, what was it, like Pillars of Eternity or whatever the thing was that we were playing? Oh, Divinity. Yeah, Divinity, right? Right. Yeah. Because you had played that before as well. And then you were just like, come over here. Where are you going? What are you doing? Oh, yeah. okay. Well, if you want to go to the inn, we can go to the inn, but that's not where we're supposed to be going. Have you been paying attention? <laughs> it's
2: quite a slow text heavy, um, <laughs> RPG though, Divinity. It feels like a, an odd fit for a co-op. I know some yeah. people love it, mm. but yeah, I mean, it didn't f- work for me at all for Portal 2 we were... and stuff like that, where the kind of the jap- the japes are built into the tone of the experience, um, or stuff like Left 4 Dead, mm. where, you know, the, the competition there between you and the AI. Like, the AI director actually trying to... Yeah, I suppose I love Destiny Raids, and that's a big fan yeah. co-op. That's yeah, something that's I did love. true. Um, but yeah, this, this is...
0: No, like, I don't like anything where you lose the story if one player decides to just run ahead. Yeah. Like, because I just...
1: Because there you go. Also, Bye. because a lot of these games, like, you
0: know, the immersion is important to me, and, like, if that is not something that you share completely with your pal, then... Yeah.
1: But isn't it that's exactly brutal. like going for a walk with me? Cause it I've is. stopped to look at something it and is. you're just like, Oh, for God's sake, <laughs> can we not just go? That's
0: an excellent point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which I suppose maybe you don't want to replicate in a game. Fine. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I like co-op and that's why I like things like Dota or things like Paladins or when I did play Overwatch, Overwatch is because I was happy to be on the same team as my friends, but then I kind of take on their mood as well. So if it's... If one person is desperately having an awful time, then Mm. that means that I can't not notice that and not sort of try and either cheer them up or... You know, it gets a bit weird, like, so everyone kind of needs to be in the same headspace, otherwise it sort of falls apart. Yeah. So... What was the question? What just what our style of oh, okay. approach to
0: this was. So I think we've you know,
1: I think mm. I'll play a bit of everything.
0: Mm. I certainly found that my my style has changed as I need to be able to account for my gaming time a bit more accurately and and you know almost justify it a little bit more. I find myself spending far less time playing games for myself because it's not doubling up as anything other than mm. purely escapist entertainment for me, which is valuable but uh, loses its value. I think over time or it becomes harder to justify mm. Mm. Uh, Javier writes Dear Crate and Crowbar I have a short and sweet question You mentioned that the expectations for a new Half-Life game delivering on the quality of narrative seen so far makes no sense and is likely but don't you think their silence revolves instead out of a lack of an engine In the olden days sequels were like new consoles for PC gamers and new Quake, Unreal, CryEngine or Source means a new generation of games Do you think that maybe several failed attempts at a groundbreaking new Source engine is the biggest impediment, in turn causing them to restart Half-Life 3 every few years over the last 12? Um, I think the answer is yes. Well, at least mm. least in part, yes.
1: Haven't they said that they're doubling down around Source 2, though? Yeah. Like, as part of the AMA? Yeah,
2: so the AMA is the thing I think we should... Yeah, so when we did the last pod, it was hours before the AMA happened. And as predicted, not much was revealed at all. But, um, Gabe Newell did say that, um, they look at new technology when they're looking at ways to kind of, to go and ways to, where to put their time into new games. And that new technology for them, what seems to be exciting at the moment is VR. I'm not sure that, and Source 2 seems to be like a necessity, seems to do things that, Previous source yeah, engines. it's an incremental in, you know, yeah. improvement over Source 1. It's not a, And it feels yeah. like, you know, it does a lot of networking stuff and kind of behind the scenes stuff that is much better for them if they're trying to sustain games mm-hmm. like Dota 2 on this huge scale. Um, but it's not necessarily the kind of fidelity leap that you'd see with, um, the last edition of Source when they were demoing Half-Life 2 and it was physics was new, you know, before proper physics was in games. Um, so that type of leap again is probably what's going to be required to excite Valve to look into creating a new game it sounds like the VR is, is that for them at the moment
1: so maybe yeah. it's more the the because for me I feel a bit like <coughs> there just hasn't been the idea like they're the sort of company where they would probably happily say yeah sure work on that for a while and see where you get with it if somebody comes up with a decent idea or at least, you know, the inklings of an idea. And then if it doesn't really go anywhere or if they can't make it work or, you know, if they need people on a different project, then they're sort of also happy to just say, meh, you know, let's leave that one for a while or, Mm. you know, I don't think it's working or whatever. And because they haven't announced anything, then, you know, nothing really lost. But maybe as you're saying, like, if they did have a new thing that they wanted to showcase, a new, you know, engine or a new sort of um, entirely new sort of concept of technology that they wanted to, maybe it would suddenly rocket up the list of priorities. It's just that at the moment it feels like a thing that would be nice if they could come up with a way of making it amazing, but otherwise, you know, they've got other things that they specifically are interested in doing
0: i think it's not it's worth not underestimating the fact that it's it's a lot more difficult for studios now to escalate with a game engine in the way that was possible in the 90s and early noughties hmm. you know we you know I, I agree with the idea that we had those big generational shifts that surrounded the release of particularly a new first person shooter because that was the genre driving all of that technological innovation that's simply not the case now yeah and incremental improvement is the rule and VR represents probably one of the biggest leaps forward, but it's situational and patchy and not available to everybody. And it's not as simple as slapping a new graphics card in and suddenly seeing something you've never seen before, like a seesaw,
2: (laughs) you know, it's um, a total conceptual shift in what games could be, basically, which is quite uh, exciting, but possibly even too far the other way. Yeah. Half-Life would want to be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess I sort
1: of, I look at Valve, you know, as the sort of, as we've said before, this obsidian mind cube that doesn't really give much away generally. And so all I can, like my my impression, I don't know where it necessarily comes from half the time Mm. given that. So it's probably based on just little things and an assumption of what I would do in that situation. So I just sort of... I just don't necessarily think that Half-Life 3 is potentially that exciting to the people who would be working on it. Yeah, I agree. And so they've got other things that they want to do. And as part of the AMA, like Gabe Newell said about, you know, the different technologies that people were sort of experimenting with, that the VR stuff was kind of of interest, obviously. and um, But also just that his, uh, you know, that other people's, Focuses. I think he specifically mentioned that he was interested in computer brain interactions and things like that. And so that feels very much like they have things that they're super interested in and will happily research and things. But I can't necessarily imagine that the third game in a series that people just sort of won't let go is <laughs> necessarily the most exciting thing for them
2: if they're going to do this kind of technological leap it would be weirdly backward looking to do Half-Life wouldn't it Mm. Uh, if they're going to do this
1: kind of also it's a no win situation Half-Life as far as I can see at the moment like if you announce anything it's never going to make many people happy no
0: (laughs) so it's great in which case
1: Uh, maybe
0: yeah I think (laughs) yeah I think it's a free win for them but I understand why they wouldn't go for it
1: I don't... <laughs> I think it's a massive trap.
0: <laughs> I, the reason I disagree is I think a lot of people would be happy with a, a solid shooter from them built on the principles of Half-Life 2, honestly. I, I think I think the mistake they made was not finishing their promised trilogy of episodes because they stuck it out with Half-Life Episode 1 and 2, they promised Episode 3, they teased Episode 3, and then they just didn't do it. And Because that was still under the Half-Life 2 header, there was no expectation with Half-Life 2 Episode 3 that... um that it would need to be this groundbreaking thing. I think they, they shot themselves in the foot by not releasing that
2: and therefore ending their trilogy halfway through. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely informed the way they talk to people. And that's definitely the reason why they never say anything now, because they just don't want to, they want to avoid disappointing people. Like When Gabe said that, I did completely buy that um they just don't want to say oh we're working on this in case people yeah. get really invested in it and they disappoint people over and over again better to be this kind of ominous cube and then sometimes so occasionally a piece of technology or a game pops out of it yeah i mean i totally get that i do totally get that but i think sometimes when people talk about the half life three thing they
0: forget that people only started asking for half life three hmm. after they got bored of asking for episode <laughs> yeah. three and that you know yeah. they, they assumed that too much time had passed to finish the episodic thing they were definitely doing so it must be a genre shattering sequel yeah Some sort of description exactly which is and so, yeah, game over at that point. Yeah, uh, but, you know, I think they've definitely left it too long to do episode three now. So, <laughs> you know, a Half-Life 2 engine yeah. decent shooter. I episode, don't know,
1: you could chuck that one out. It'd be fine. <laughs> you know,
0: honest to God, that's not the worst idea in the world, I think. Because yeah. the reason people are upset is primarily because they were promised a trio of episodes. They got two of them. It ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. there's, there's still a... a A shit and an unavoidable thing, ultimately. Anyway. uh, Henry writes, Dear Commanders and Conquerors, I would love to play the latest Hitman game, but I'm afraid I'll struggle with it just as I did with Blood Money back then. I couldn't even finish the demo because I simply couldn't use the piano wire to strangle my targets. You had to be positioned in the exact right spot and hit the button in the exact right moment to do so. Most players didn't seem to have any issue with it, but I would stand right behind an unsuspecting guard, desperately hitting the strangle key over and over again without success. I managed to do it a few times, but not reliably enough to play the game, so I gave up feeling quite stupid. This leads me to my question. Did you ever have to quit playing a game just because you couldn't master its controls for some reason? Thanks for reading, and please keep casting those pods forever. Henry. I
1: had to stop playing Thumper, because... hmm. Or or I did it first, and then it was only when I went back to it that I got the hang of it, and that's because... When it's teaching you, it doesn't really explain what it's doing. It's a series of cues and, you know, it's sort of, it tells you a little bit, but you, you're sort of intuiting it. And some reason I had thought that in order to, I think, maybe execute a turn or something, you had to hold, keep the button held down, but you just had to tap it. And because I was keeping it held down for what I thought was the right duration it kept doing slightly odd things and so I would miss turns because it wouldn't register as a tap sometimes. Mm. But sometimes it would because I would happen to release it at the right time for something else, I think. And so I just got so fed up of what felt like um, a random fail when I went round a corner that I couldn't understand because I thought, oh, well, maybe it requires, you know, some kind of, you know, millisecond specific timing and I'm just not getting it and then it turned out oh you just don't hold space down well fine Um, but it was only when I went back to it after that and you know fiddled around again that I managed to clear the other thing out of my head and so if I hadn't tried it again I I would never have got to grips with that and I would have just walked away thinking that game had really weird unreliable controls Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think, um like, I actually agree. Like, I always really struggled to get into the original Hitman games because the controls were so obtuse. Mm. And new Hitman is obtuse, but I do think they made one change um that makes a vast difference. Because I used to have this problem generally with old games. Like, there was definitely, back in the day, uh, along with there being an acceptance that sometimes PC games just wouldn't fucking work, there was also an acceptance that control schemes would be weird and you would need a printed out sheet of key bindings mm. for each new game just to understand how to interact with it. Um some standardized control schemes have helped with that, but so of a willingness from sort of UI designers basically to give you prompts for what will happen when you press a button. And the new hitman is is particularly good at this because as you're walking around, it pops up to tell you what will happen if you press E now and what will happen if you press X now and all the rest of that. And it'll even give you a little bit more contextual information, like you know, it there's a difference between walking up to push someone if you will just You know, push them over or, you know, into something, you know, like a pile of bins. Not that you can do that, but you know what I mean? And if you are going to push them off a ledge, like it'll clarify, it'll say eliminate under the push. Hmm. So it'll just give that qualifier to the action, which means that when you press the button, you're very rarely, you don't end up in that situation we were talking about earlier about having it spiral out of control because you didn't know what the buttons would do. Um, it gives you, it tells you exactly what will happen when you push the button. Um, before you push it. And what that means is that when, you know, that whole thing about getting into position and then finding that the garrote button doesn't work can't really happen because you know you're not in position if that prompt hasn't shown up. Yeah. So I would actually encourage um, Henry to to try Hitman, the new one, if that was his problem with the old one. Because even though the noise f- are still a little bit fiddly, uh, that extra layer of clarity means that you don't end up in that situation, I think. So, Yeah. Cool. It's a good gam. Yeah, I like it. Damien writes, G'day from Australia. I went back to Elite Dangerous after Chris described the recent changes going on in its universe. Wanting to do some trading, I did a Google for trading advance, trading advice, and found a database search tool which not only showed me the prices of wares in any system, but also tell me the ideal location to buy and then sell any ware for maximum profit within a limited radius of my current system. I debated whether or not I should use this tool to cash in, or if it was too exploitative. I would not have had this internal debate if this tool was within the game itself, made available by the developer. What is the best community-made tool that you've used for a game? Was this tool so essential or enhancing that it would have really been the develop- that it really should have been the developer which included it within the game in the first place? Cheers, Damien. So, like, that is an interesting debate because, like, there there is also like because it is a fine line. Like there's an iPad app that I, I tried, but don't like um, that is like, I think it's pretty very rocket, which allows you to like sync your tablet to your PC and create like custom control schemes on the tablet. And that's actually pretty sweet. If you're kind of running like a, like a simulator setup, cause you can literally surround yourself with touch screens oh, that yeah. activate ship functions. That's pretty good with like custom UI and stuff. And that's pretty cool. I find it a bit janky and uncomfortable when you're just sitting at your PC normally yeah. Um and not really necessary, but that That is fine, but it's not something that you would... It doesn't give you an advantage, but it's not something that you would expect Frontier to have included. Although it'd be cool if they did. Hmm. Um, but yeah, something that gives you a straight-up advantage with no downside is a really tricky thing to, to reconcile, I think.
1: I think sometimes I've looked up things like in um, Sunless Sea. Uh, I looked up, you know... Uh, trade rates and things Mm. so for buying and selling and that was simply because I felt like if I had been um if I was a captain in this game I would have made notes of these things as we went round it's just that because there was no sort of note-making ability in the game I hadn't Mm. and so I figured that as a Like it it didn't interfere with my immersion in the game that I had that information to hand and it didn't feel like cheating and it didn't Mm. feel like it was breaking anything. It felt more like the internet was sort of filling in a system which should have been either should have been part of the game or was left out for expediency but wasn't a thing that I felt I should be without necessarily.
2: Mm. Sounds like you'd also um the questioner is just skipping a system they didn't want to interact with, which is fine, maybe. It's mm. a way of, to find your yeah. own difficulty, isn't it? And improve the yeah, flow I think of it the game is for fine. yourself.
0: Like I feel like when a lot of these things also do end up in the game one way or another. Like um I don't know if this will necessarily, but there'd be no harm in it because again it last players to, to determine their own difficulty. Um Like I think maybe developers sometimes look at the tools that people are developing around in game and use that as guidance to what's actually important to people or what people are finding boring. Like if someone is searching out a tool to play a game in a certain way, then chances are maybe that's just the way the game should be. Like, you know, um, in the latest Dota UI overhaul, not the latest one, but one of the most recent ones, they incorporated loads of things that had previously been only like loads of data and stats and things about games that you could only previously find in stat tracking websites (coughs) that pulled things from the API. The example I think we would all go back to for this is Destiny, um, mm. which had um, which has a really interesting series of things that you can do with the with the API for that game, um, where uh, Bungie maintain a website and all of your character information, your profile, your vault full of items, all of that stuff is available online, and with a browser you can move things between your vault and your character and back again and, and whatever without having to return to town. On the fly so if you have a computer next to you you can you know and you are in the middle of a raid and you need something from your vault and you don't want to quit out you can just parachute it in as long as you've got the space to do so but that requires a browser and that was obviously something that people wanted access to but not everyone has a personal computer right next to wherever they play their console games so you know apps were inevitable and initially the bungee app was pretty bad and didn't give you all the functionality that you wanted um and so the the kind of the, the the third party apps arrived and they were a lot better and then they started to incorporate other functionality that had been developed separately to that like event timers to help you find the public events so you didn't have to hang around too much on planets waiting for a specific public event to spawn you'd be told what was likely to happen in the next 10 minutes and so these little sort of packages of tools came that enhanced the experience of play with no downsides really yeah. for anybody and then Bungie improved their own stuff, and that you know, actually, sort of fed back into you know, and now it's just sort of an accepted part of the game that you can, you know, you go back to town to get stuff out of the vault, but only if that, only if for whatever reason, you don't have your phone on you.
1: I think um, there's also the the idea that the developers will give you tools that hopefully will push you towards playing the game in the way that they want you to play it but that doesn't necessarily mean that the way you want to play it is bad if it diverges from that for example I can imagine that Bungie kind of wanted people to sort of be surprised by these events when they happened in world and they also probably wanted you to perhaps use them for earning you know upgrades on weapons and things like that but over time but people don't necessarily have that time or, you know, that time would have been longer than their enjoyment of the game without those extra sort of apps and the event Mm. timers and things. And so it's not necessarily in Bungie's interest for the player to stick with their vision of it. Yeah,
0: I see. And the interesting inverse of that, but I think reliant on the same logic is it also doesn't make sense for Bungie to release an official public event timer tool because i like the first time i saw a public event in destiny it blew my mind because i didn't realize now i know that game inside out because i played it so much Mm. i know when in what you would think of as the single player missions it briefly phases you into a multiplayer instance and out again seamlessly um and those public events could happen in any in any form of a multiplayer instance including the ones that are sandwiched in the middle of of single player so i thought i was playing single player and then suddenly a a satellite falls out of orbit and then i'm defending it with other players and they've sort of all seamlessly come in but then i go into the next area of my single player bit and those players just go away and i'm left on my own again that's a brilliant trick um it would have been spoiled for me if there was a part of the interface i could have uncovered that said next public event in Lands due in two minutes so but that said after you know fast forward a couple of hundred hours And I am mega familiar with the game systems. I know exactly how it works, and I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a particular WarSat public event. At that point, I would probably get bored if they made me wait. Yeah. So at that point, the fact that there are third-party apps is great, and it means that kind of you can have both in a way because you have the surprise factor and the kind of magic trick for that first generation of players because the game conceals that information but then the third party is there to prop up players that have invested heavily and for whom the surprise is now meaningless.
2: That's the thing. Is, um, it's kind of the ideal solution because if you're invested enough to care that much, you'll, you will find the third-party apps anyway. Um, and this happens to me with Guild Wars 2 as well, where they've got these fantastic kind of public uh, event quest chains that will culminate in just an enormous, incredible kind of boss fight in the middle of an open-world area. Um, and eventually you're just looking for timers for those. But I would never want that in the game because it would have destroyed the initial, the first time I saw a dragon just land somewhere and and like 20 players are there. I don't know why they're there waiting for this dragon. And just at that moment, it's like, it's worth the hassle of going to third parties to preserve that initial Mm. mystery and kind of mystique. So it's an interesting one. It's kind of a form of, I wouldn't call it cheating, of just kind of streamlining the game for yourself, which you've kind of... Gained a certain level of expertise with it
1: i think that's the thing is that what the game ships with and the stuff that is officially developed is the developer's statement of intent and is sort of taken as a kind of guide for how to play the game and so if you include ways to make it entirely about systems and totally strip out the story or the sense of wonder then that is taken as a kind of thing that the developers are then responsible for whereas if you have to seek it out and then make that part of your experience that's fine but mm. it's a decision that you've taken and they haven't sort of pushed you towards or made part of what they've done <coughs> and you know risked i guess cheapening some of the narrative bits or some of the exploration bits
2: you see it with stuff um like Radio eyes for world of warcraft and stuff where play the third party stuff was so good that blizzard just ended up emulating it wholesale and then other co- companies have copied blizzard so radio eyes are now just kind of a, a weird amalgamation of stuff that various communities have come up with and that developers have responded to mm. so you get these mm. interesting pieces of hybrid audience dev design yeah. that persist today yeah that is super interesting, actually,
3: yeah, watching that stuff kind of sold in.
2: But I don't think you should feel bad about
0: getting your trade data from Google, because oh, like God people. knows I do. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that kind of brings us neatly to our to our next question, which is also about the value of your time. Uh, Iray, I think I'm pronouncing that right, says, I'm currently playing through Pillars of Eternity, as I found myself with a reasonable amount of time while job hunting. However, while working, I can never find the time necessary to truly enjoy a 60-plus hour RPG. Do you have any recommendations for condensed RPG experiences that will scratch my D&D itch without leaving me a tired husk of a man? Or is the satisfaction linked too heavily to the timescales and scope of these games
2: to ever be reduced to a more manageable size? All the best, Irae. Those games are super, super long. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they weren't. They're like, I love Pillars of Eternity, but wow, that game is huge. Yeah. <laughs> so I almost don't have a hope of finishing it for the reasons the questioner describes. Hmm. It's just too much. Um I think it's not necessarily D&D, but I love the Mass Effect games for being relatively concise. Yeah. 40 hours rather than 100. Yeah. Which is still a lot, but you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I think we mentioned it earlier, Banner Saga is a decent fit for this, um, because for sure, it's, yeah. it's, it's decently long, but it's not infinite. And it's, it's also, as well. I think crucially, it's sort of, it feels kind of episodic. It's a linear tale in some ways, even though your yeah. choices do matter. And that means that it's not like a, an intimidating open world that you can get totally lost in. It's, you know,
2: Yeah, really cool game.
0: You can dip in and out.
1: (laughs) Might be worth seeing if there's any um, RPG type stuff on tablet or whatever, because tablet and mobile in general sort of tend to be viewed as more things that people can play in smaller chunks of time. So Mm. that might be an area in which to start having a little look.
3: Yeah,
0: Um, I suggest Darkest Dungeon as well. Um, that's a good, yeah, that's good. sort of pint-sized dungeon exploring <clears> game <throat> that you can dip again, dipping out of. I think sometimes the key isn't length so much as the ability to like put it down and pick it back up again yeah, and keep definitely. playing a
2: little bit more and enjoy it. Definitely, yeah, that's definitely the problem with something like Pillars of Eternity, where if I went back into that game now, I I put it, it down completely and completely lost. Yeah, <laughs> no idea where I am or what my party's built to do. Mm. Yeah, except,
0: it? you know, I'm excited about Um Torment. Tides of Numenera yeah. which is out pretty soon Um but I know that when that comes out I need to put the time aside because like, I need to yeah. play it and it's you know like I'm invested in that setting and I love that type of RPG and that kind of writing so I should play it but I know that even if I love it, I'll walk away from it
2: and not be able to reconnect with it. So, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. last time I played Baldur's Gate, tried to play Baldur's Gate 2, which is a game that I've enjoyed very much but repeatedly had the same problem with. Um I think there's actually like a journal writing function within the game that mm. I tried to use to write journals, uh, but it just dissolved into madness. <laughs> like, it was just, just <laughs> trying to record the stat builds of what I was trying to do with various characters alongside trying to, you know, keep pace with all the narrative stuff. And it just doesn't work. Like, I was considering with the next big RPG, just... Leaving myself, like, an audio diary, just recording myself talking about, like, what the will we, hell? Will we ever find this? And you'll have
0: scrawled, like, turned back on the wall of your flat and jam yeah, That's and right. find you just, like, slumped the,
2: with the, with the, the tape dictaphone with next the, to
0: you. Or yeah.
1: you could yeah. leave the dictaphones around the office and so have that be, like, and one of the collectibles it. in the open world adventure so that the, is... Tom's senior disappeared gamer.
2: six months ago. <laughs> Discover what the fuck happened to him. It would be like paid in a The Witness. witness you know? far too much pillars. <laughs> but it's like you're just sitting there with a dictaphone, just kind of like saying, oh, here's Jake. He's a tank. Uh, he's got this. These are his skills. This is how you use him. He synergizes with, with uh, you know, Jane. She's really good at magic. And, you know, this is how they interact. Also, you're on a quest to save the world. These three quests are midpoint the, this one's important just kind of leaving myself an audio kind of log of every fucking <laughs> thing thinking, I need to know about you end again. up more like like Dale Cooper in Twin <laughs> yeah, Peaks yeah, at this yeah. point be like Diane like, <laughs>
3: <laughs> alright
0: yeah. uh, I need three more goblin skulls and it's not the guy you think it's the guy in, it's the blacksmith in the other town with the tree he
2: <laughs> wants that for a jerkin and uh, the kobolds here are excellent <laughs> <laughs> i might do this actually this sounds like a funny feature <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I'm, d- I'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this with numenera that's what i'm gonna do yeah well, nice i'm trying to think of a twin peaks
1: um well RPG, or something yeah
0: <laughs> okay that's uh that is uh, i guess the the answer to that question is play a big rpg but while role-playing agent del cooper from twin peaks that is what? brilliant answer we came up with yeah, great
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: um <laughs>
1: and a feature yay
0: hey <laughs> good meeting everybody that's what we were doing i don't know any other business no that's that is all of the questions we've got time for if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode you can do so by emailing us questions at you can also tweet us at creightoncrowbar You can hang out on our Discord channel with our community. Uh, The link for our Discord channel is on the top bar of our website at CrateandCrowbar.com. And I've asked about short URLs and don't know yet. We'll find out. We'll (laughs) figure something out. But anyway, it's a button on our website. You can push that. You can do anything. Um, If you would like to follow us individually, I'm C Thurston on Twitter. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Tom is... At PCDU Ludo, which is L-U-D-O.
1: I'm at Philippa War. Sorry, I was just totally looking in the other direction and wondering why you don't ever spell the PCG part, but then it's letters. Self-evident, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's all there. So, you know, he doesn't right. spell the Ludo part. No, but he does. Oh, he does. does, doesn't he? Yeah, you see. Right.
0: Right. Sorry, yes. Go on.
1: Anyway, so I'm at Mm. That
0: spells Philippa War. Yes um so my sister uh, does that what
1: the um the counting my name on her fingers i think i heard her doing it over the phone when she was working out my email address and she actually i she had to do the same like it's a complicated name weird pausing a lot of and finger like counting <laughs> <laughs>
0: um also this is so uh we have well i guess we should just say creating is now supported by patreon again uh we haven't actually started charging our backers yet we're not going to do so until the
1: you should get on that well no the plan <laughs> we have stated
0: is that we are no going I to start we're going to start doing so at the in uh the first podcast in in february and the way patreon works is um it all gets totted up at the end of the month so uh we're doing this so that partly we can you know gauge what we're going to do and we've, we've detailed our plans before on the podcast and it was again on the website and the links in the show notes and so on so
1: the next podcast
0: yeah, so the next podcast will be the first one that we tick the little <coughs> box that means that backers are charged, but nobody is charged until the end of the month anyway, because it's on a per podcast basis. So we're doing this for two reasons. One is um so that we can get a sense of, you know, how much how much support is out there, but also so that anyone who wants who maybe backed the Patreon before and would like to not has uh, ample time um to detach themselves um but yeah so we're running the Patreon again with a view to bringing in more guests to the podcast and making it more sustainable but also so that we can start thinking about cool spin-off things um the the first thing that we're definitely doing is tom and i starting next month will be doing a monthly um sort of like hobby and wargaming podcast which will focus on the stuff that we are personally doing every every month so that'll be like a little bit of my x-wing stuff and a lot probably a lot of our collective warhammer projects the sort of assorted games workshop things but just sort of a meander around the you know our experience with hobby gaming in, in a given month but that's only the first of a pretty <coughs> big range of things we'd like to be able to do with with crate and crowbar and so your uh support is very very welcome and is uh, incredibly heartening to see. So thank you very much if you're a Patreon backer. And if you'd like to become one, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Crate Crowbar, which is where you'll find all of these assorted details. And just a
1: dollar. Just that a dollar. Nice. Just
0: one dollar.
1: That's basically a quid. <laughs> increasingly, <laughs> so, <laughs> increasingly
0: so. Increasingly um, so. But yeah, and I promise that in future episodes of the podcast, I will have a shorter Patreon spiel. That's my personal project. And Let's that's, not
1: make promises we can't stick to. <laughs> indeed.
0: And that is all the podcast we've got time for.
1: Thank you Thanks for, listening. for listening,
0: everybody. everybody.